online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Welcome to Flavour Talks with Bella Zoo. I'm Robert Kirbishley. Bella Zoo's new podcast, Flavour Talks, is all about extraordinary and uncompromised flavour. We'll be chatting to our long-standing suppliers, creative chef customers, inspiring influencers and some of the UK's leading food experts to share adventures and stories behind our favourite ingredients, giving you an insight into our world of food. This week, I'm sitting down with Tom Barton, co-founder of Honest Burgers, and James Elliott, co-founder of Pizza Pilgrims, for an utterly mouth-watering conversation all about two of our favorite things. These eager entrepreneurs tell us what life was like before they launched their businesses, how they've developed their restaurants into local stalwarts, and what the future looks like in the burger and pizza landscape. Welcome to another edition of uh, Flavor Talks yeah. with Bella Zoo. And this week, um, I'm slightly intimidated and delighted to uh, to welcome James Elliott from Pizza Pilgrims and Tom Barton from Honest Burger. Hello. Hello. Woohoo. Woo-hoo. <laughs> Hello. How are you both? <laughs> I'm very good. Yeah. I'm very good. I'm also good. I'm sitting in our restaurant in Selfridges, and we've created this kind of like dough room because I, I needed to be somewhere quiet to record this and this so i'm basically sitting in a glass cage it's a glass cage of emotion and dough uh, right so listen i tell you what uh, would you mind introducing yourself so if james you go first and then tom you go second obviously my name is james and i am co-founder of pizza pilgrims with my brother tom uh we started back in 2011 where we drove a little three-wheeled tuk-tuk from the sicily to london on a pizza pilgrimage to learn all about pizza we thought it was going to take a week it ended up taking six weeks because the van goes 15 miles an hour which was a surprise to my brother's wife and the photographer that came with us we did really enjoy ourselves but we figured out that the google maps speed for driving is not appropriate to an ape. You have to take the walking speed and the driving speed and divide it by two and then you've got then you've got the ape speed. Um, anyway, then we, we so we had we had lots of fun in Italy, then we got back to London, put a pizza oven in the back, set up on Berwick Street Market in Soho and we're trading there for two years. Then opened a restaurant bang opposite Pizza Express, which everyone said was a terrible idea. That was in Soho and then we've kind of been sort of growing steadily since then. I, uh, my name's Tom and I am also a co-founder um, of Honest Burgers. Um, so Phil and myself set up the business um, back in Brighton uh, about 2009, where we, we pulled um, our pennies together and decided to buy a marquee and a grill and a fryer. We were gonna revolutionize the festival burger and then we quickly realized that you need lots of money to go into big festivals and we'd spent all our money on our tent so we couldn't actually get any jobs anywhere really um and this is this is before street food had really found its feet so we kind of bumbled through anyone that would have us that literally anyone would have us i, I found jobs on gumtree um which is not the go-to place for you know street food stalls um but i found them um and we we managed to create a um very kind of small following out of our our tent but what we did manage to do is we realized that we loved it and this was our we were going to make this work by hook or by crook fortunately for us we managed to stumble across um the delight which is brixton village and decided to give that a run for its money and we again we we brought on another co-founder a guy called dorian and the three of us pulled our pennies once more and we opened our first restaurant with um with seven and a half grand which is probably the proudest facts i've got on this burgers um because you know that doesn't go very far these days um but we got the doors open and i managed to yeah just sort of hit the ground sprinting basically and, and customers were really um really nice about what we were doing and we've now fast forward 10 or so years we've got 44 restaurants we're kind of a national burger brand, weirdly. Are you, are you happy about that, though? I am. I just sometimes, <laughs> you need to, it's quite hard to kind of make peace with the last 10 years, like how you've got to this stage. I'm sure James has felt it. You just don't really understand. It's such a whirlwind for us, and it's been um, it's hard yeah. to resonate. I, I have trouble with the word, how do you sit with the word shame? Because it's got so many I negative think, connotations, I mean, isn't it? It has. But that's just because there are lots of bad chains out there. But I don't think chain means you have to be bad. But there, are, there definitely is a lot. I think, I think you've got to face I, I that, that, though. Like, in terms of like the dictionary definition, you're a chain, goddammit. <laughs> 
group sits to me uh, the group sits in the same group of words as like oh yeah. well, what about what about it's just like what about i don't know there's, there's restaurateur, it's restaurateur right restaurateur uh, yeah, what, yeah, what yeah, about yeah. there must be a there must be a collective now like a murder of crows i mean like, that's I mean, what i was thinking yeah not, like i mean a, like a murder of restaurants is perhaps not the best one but um herd? but maybe i'm a herd of restaurants <laughs> a herd of restaurants would be would be, would very, be perfect that works for us that's nice that's nice i mean i I wanted, what I, I yeah. wanted to ask you, what did life? Yeah, I'm going to ask you, what did life look like before you did um, your before you started both your businesses? What what um, what did you do? Uh, because I want to then move on to, to to why you chose to do pizza and why you chose to do burgers. So what? I don't mind who goes first. So what, what did life look like before you you, you opened Honest Burger and, and Pizza Pilgrims? My my life um, just quite a long hangover of, of five years <laughs> at university, basically. So my life. <laughs> For honest, was just bumbling through a degree, and I'm not academic, but uh, I was the I was the one going to university in my family, so I did, and I made an absolute meal of, of a degree that just got me in loads of. Did you do a five year degree, or did you do a three year degree that took five years? Um, <laughs> I just loved it so much. I was just dripping. I was squeezed every drop out of my education. Um, I didn't want it to end. I was like, I was yeah, like a Van Wilder of Brighton, just nowhere near as cool or handsome. But I, um, I bet I just got. I just had way too much fun at uni, and I didn't take my studies very seriously. But I what did, were you studying, Tom? Sorry, what were you studying? Uh, business management with marketing. Right. So, so you'd think you go, Hello. oh, business, and he set up a business. <laughs> Maybe those two things go hand in hand, but no, they don't at all. But I didn't. I, I struggled to write down on a post-it what I learned at university. Really would, but I. But one thing I did learn from university is I loved cooking, and I had this. It's one of the dare I say, and it was close to an epiphany my brain could handle. Was in Sainsbury's in in Brighton I had my student loan in the bank and I'd been fed amazing food my whole life by um by my parents are divorced and both my mums are amazing cooks and I um had been fed this amazing food and then I realized when I was day one of university I was like oh my god I can't cook and I don't have any mums to cook for me anymore (laughs) they're like 200 miles away what the hell am I going to do so I was like okay let's be pragmatic you just need to learn and I started learning to cook and I loved it and and as soon as I started learning to cook then I was like amazing and and then my mum was like the the only thing I've heard you talk about passionately is food like don't don't move to London and put a tie on and get a real job like try and do something with food and that's where it all started for me um I started working in restaurants and not in in kitchens but just in the in the bars and front of house um and just learning what I could about just getting a feel for it all yeah i loved it man like my mates used to i used to you know mates would give me sort of whatever they had in their pockets like you know five to ten quid sometimes and i'd go down and we'd eat beef wellington like once a week as a student because we just lump it all together and i'd be happy to cook it um so i was cooking all these like fancy dishes and just getting a real love for for cooking really and that's how it kind of steered me into into honest um when i met phil at at another restaurant in brighton and we were like you know phil was the people man i was the food guy and together we unite and turn into (laughs) honest burgers Fantastic. James. Uh, so me and Tom grew up in a pub. So we were kind of always around food and and it was kind of like 1991, I think, when the, all the breweries went bust or something and like all the pubs became freehold. Our parents took over a pub and did like the first version of a gastro pub by all accounts. I think it was like, I remember there was things like a quad of Cotswold sausages <laughs> on the menu. <laughs> and, like uh, it just, I, I actually found and uh, half a pound of sirloin nice. steak was also on the menu, I remember. But it was basically the first time that a pub like had good food with it. So I kind of grew up around that. Um, and I kind of worked in the kitchens a bit and then moved to London and had the world's shortest career in Michelin star restaurants. I worked in the Mirabelle, Marco Pierre White's restaurant <laughs> for eight hours. And I saw, I saw a waiter get pulled through the pub <laughs> by the head chef. Um, and I was like this, and I, and I was given, my job was to chop courgettes uh, into like, I can't even remember what it's called. What's the tiny dice into, <laughs> into tiny dice uh, for, I, you know, little ones. And I did it for eight hours. And then the chef came along and went, that's not good enough. And bin the whole lot. And I was like, this is oh, not, this what, is was not that, Was that so actual then, Marco? <laughs> or not Marco? Went to uni. No, it was one of Marco's head chefs. I can't remember his name, but he was, he was kind of one of those yeah. kind of more like military dudes. So then I went to uni and I studied popular and world music. Like you do. Yeah. 
Oh, you were a confused child, weren't you? <laughs> then went into, uh, ironically, radio production <laughs> for a year. <laughs> and then uh, left Six Music and went and worked in TV. And I was just, I was just an amazing combination of didn't like my job and was terrible at it. And so was my brother. And so we used to go and like sit in the pub and lament how crap our jobs were. I just remember that the, the, the guys that were all doing well in television around me were all like wannabe directors and sort of making short films. So I was like, I want to do food. What's the equivalent of a short film in food? And it was a street food band, basically. So then we did, we, we kind of developed the street food idea. I actually pitched it as a TV show. So I don't, I, this is gloriously so long ago that not people remember, yeah. but it was actually a, I, remember that. I got it commissioned as a six part uh, cooking series. Yeah, yeah. It was on Food Network. And uh, so we brought, we had a whole film crew come with us to, to, to Italy, which was really quite surreal. And uh, I've got a question for James. Why didn't that launch um, a massive TV career for you, James? I mean, <laughs> tell me about it. There's only one answer, possibly. It's, oh, uh, my brother, yeah. My brother's <laughs> just dead weight. Yeah. <laughs> in, a, in an area and I've got to be careful what I say because I'm absolutely not being disparaging but I, I'm going to give you so I've got a, I've got a takeaway near me and feel free to nick this idea and it's called Burgitza uh, I don't know whether you can guess what's coming next and they do Ooh. burgers and they do pizza together and they've called themselves Burgitza um, which is near Watford if anyone's interested um, but I mean pizza and burger are massively oversubscribed aren't they what, um, what was it that was missing that led you to, to start up the businesses, do you think? My memories, I don't know if I'm just being nostalgic, but my memories of 2012, the street food world was really awesome. Like it was, I remember it, like, it's the only chance I'd ever have of like living through something that was really like, yeah. you know, a little time. It was like, it was such a cool thing. Suddenly from everything being massive, big businesses and not really having much of a sort of human impact. I think also social media helped break through like very like, boring, stale ways of talking to people. But yeah, street food markets started happening and it became very cool and like little independent restaurants. And I remember like Meat Liquor had an ambulance that would rock up in the car park of Peckham and like 300 people yeah. would turn up for a burger. It was proper, like, and it was like rock and roll, wasn't it? It was like, yeah. they were like bands. You used to queue, you used to queue outside Picky for three hours and drink 17, 17 uh, picklebacks. My theory with Picu was that the food at the beginning was never that like, good. You were just so drunk by the time you got a table that you were just, it was like ambrosia. You were just like, ah! I think that's what needed to happen, really. I think the food, yeah, the, a lot of big businesses watching a lot of pennies were maybe not putting the best food on the table and weren't like having enough fun with it. And it was too it was too much big business, not enough small independence like yeah. like having yeah, a show. I think I agree with all that. I think it's like the you know, businesses were as good as they had to be and customers were queuing up for queuing up for them, but they were they were you know, these, these big businesses were making tons of money and opening dozens and dozens of sites every year and you know, this kind of unsustainable growth. And then I think for me specifically with burgers, I, I was you know, in Brighton the best burger down there was G B K and that's to be fair, that's where I would go, you know. In between shifts and and hangover or whatever, would would go and grab a burger, and I was like, "God, oh, that's amazing!" And it's only when I went to I started making burgers myself for us, and we hadn't, you know, me and Phil, we, we weren't like sort of crystal ball gazing, thinking that London's about to explode and and let's let's jump on the the wave of burgers. For us, we wanted to get into food. We had no money, and we thought, "What do you need the least amount of equipment for?" And what do we like to eat ourselves? Um, and for us, that was burgers. And we thought, you know, actually, what if we were going to do a burger brand, what would it stand for? And it would be great ingredients. And it would be, you know, really simple cooking. And it would be homemade, which I know is a word that is like, that's, homemade is now like the, the, a word like chain or restaurateur. Like everyone everyone uses it, or maybe not restaurateur, but everyone, <laughs> chain and homemade is, a, is an overused word for sure. And, and we wanted to see if we could do it differently and it's only when you actually go for it and you know we went to several butchers and we tried making our own burgers and we tried making our own chips and we gave them to our friends and they were like no these are really good that's when we were like oh okay maybe we should actually do this yeah i mean it's because you um you brought in a chip consultant didn't you you uh yeah <laughs> okay so Please tell me, please tell me that the name of that person was Chip Advisor. It, it, it could well be now. He, this is quite a funny story, though. He, oh. This is a guy, you know, I'm sure, James, you've had, you, you, you get an equal measure of good luck and bad luck 
in business, I think. And it, it might not feel like that at the time, but I think spread out over your lifetime, you tend to really get equal measures of good and bad. And this was a very, very good luck bit of dose that we had. When I was, we, we were in Brixton, we were busy as hell. Like we had, we had, we were trying to make everything from scratch in a kitchen, which is the size of most restaurants' toilets. Like it is absolutely minuscule down there. And we were trying to triple cook chips with a with a stock pot on a on a griddle. We, all these things that they just weren't working, but we were doing our best. And all of a sudden, we, we what was working on our chips and our chips were you know this was the kind of Jay Rayner um, edible crystal meth era when he he wrote and he. He wrote an article about that, and we were like, wow. So we had all these people queuing up for our food, and then all of a sudden our chips just fell off a cliff, and they just turned brown and soggy. And we were like, what the hell has happened? Like, we haven't changed anything. We bought, we're buying from the same supplier. And I, I look back at this, and I think, why don't we just Google it? Why don't we just Google? Like, I don't know if it was that long ago that you didn't just use Google for everything. Um, but we didn't, and we were just, like, stressing out. We didn't really know what the answer was, and we had a guy working for us, um, called Rob Hope Johnson, who's the nicest human being on the planet. And he was working, we had this tiny little prep kitchen just around the corner. And he came in, he was making rosemary salt for us. And he comes in and he could see like the anguish and pain on my face. And I genuinely, I, I look back at it and I'm like on my knees in the kitchen and it's like raining down on me and I'm looking up <laughs> at the sky for like penance. And basically I said to him, I'm, I'm just, I'm so stressed out. I don't know what to do. We've got all these customers I've got all these prepped chips, none of their, 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 their crap, and all these customers are waiting for us, and I don't know what to do. I need a potato scientist or, like, a potato specialist. And he looks at me and goes, oh, why don't you say, Tom, my dad works for Walker's Crisps. He literally goes around potato farms smoking up the, the best potatoes for, for crisps. And I was like, yes, please. Um, and just took his number and phoned him and he gave me like a crash course on, on spuds basically and, and that genuinely changed how we how we made our chips and then uh, we got him in about three years ago he came in as a consultant where we had he'd retired and yeah we, we were like right come work for us for a year and just show us everything you know about about spuds and seasonality and varieties and and yeah that was it that was uh, that was my my chip advisor story. That's I mean, that's fantastic. I I, I love that. That's and, and I think that is the thing that you um, for the for for entrepreneurial for small businesses would uh, would I hate the word artisanal, but artisanal. Um, it, it's 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 actually caring. It's like um, in a way, it's like performing in that you know when you when you put something in front of people, you are judged upon it, and you know you you don't get that with a bigger business i don't think very rarely anyway at least it, it's um it, it's lovely to hear but i mean well, i think that's was... such a nice part of street food so it's like i don't know how you felt james probably the same in terms of like you give someone something give them food they give you money and you generally watch them eat it like they, they, they go off and you know when we, we used to serve those people they would take a couple of steps away from our marquee and then just start eating it and then they start <laughs> tweeting about it and then it would be like a review and it was like it was so immediate and that for me was just like it was crazy like it was really you know amazingly exciting experience but god it was it was terrifying how immediate your feedback would be yeah we had the exact same experience and it was that street food stall model where owner the man what took out a credit card and bought a tent and a griddle makes the burger serves it to the customer and then they eat it immediately and tell you like that's basically exactly what was kind of maybe the problem with the restaurant issue is that th there wasn't that immediateness. So that was that was so great. People were like, yeah, it kind of stri it stripped back all the layers of big business and was just like, it, it let you get on with with the sort of. The well, what, I mean, of it. It so you, you did the Italian road trip. I mean, that that was just to put that into context had you started uh, sort of playing around with with pizzas at that point and then thought look i don't know what i'm doing i'm going to go to italy and find out or did you think this is what i want to do before i do anything i'm going to go uh, to italy and find out about them so i'd i'd gone and done a stage in a restaurant like a, just a really like rustic mm -hmm. restaurant in, in in italy in tuscany i mean it was a bit <laughs> jolly but i went and worked there for about a month for a guy called gianluca and he was amazing and he was just like he was like the Italian chef from The Simpsons. He was everything you hoped he would be. He was just like passionate. He was passionate and like crazy and like we just had a really good time. We, I was using a pizza oven there, but what I'd come back with was the idea of like, oh, maybe it'd be interesting to start a, start a pizza oven building business. Cause, and I remember the idea was going to be like, it's like a barbecue, but 
better for England because it's got a roof on it. So like even in the rain, it works. That was that was kind of that was well, I was still at uni actually. So that was kind of like I'd planted that seed of like pizza and pizza ovens. Quite a big business. And now, then right? um, this guy called Jamie uh, Oliver started a pizza oven business, and I was like, he's probably going to do all right at that. So I'm probably going to let him just. I'll take. I'll let him take that one. Yeah. Then and then pizza was just. I think it was. It wasn't. It was pr- probably a little bit under service, mostly because in the street food in the street food world, lugging an oven around was harder. <laughs> so I think. That was that was one of the reasons why pizza hadn't been taken as a as a as a sort of as a product so much. And I, I remember in those early days there were less pizza places than there were burger places because the oven was a yeah, it's a, a yeah. to move around. It's a huge <laughs> no, piece. Of kit. The I mean, it is. I mean, like, as you very well know, I I built one in the garden uh, uh, last year, and um, apart from the fact if if it gets wet it melts, which is not a good thing for an oven. Uh, it, I mean, it, it, I mean, it's sort of talk about over-engineering and the weight involved is is ridiculous. But you I mean, your, like, your pizza oven melts if it gets yeah. wet. Yeah, it's made of clay and it doesn't. So oh. yeah, so it's a clay oven which sort of literally half of it is made from clay from when we had some work done. They dug out the foundations and I sort of half jokingly said to the builder, "If you come across a clay seam, because I knew there were some around here, could you save some for? Because I'd quite like to build an oven." And then I came home one day and there were like nine bags. Of clay and I was like oh I'd better do that <laughs> yeah but yeah no I mean it, it, it unfortunately does fall apart I, if so I've got to you've got to keep it dry been there, my I think most of us who've, who've built one have but I mean you've settled on the on the Neapolitan that's right isn't it it is a Neapolitan pizza that you yeah so that was so in, two, in 2011 when we went to Italy we'd never eaten a Neapolitan pizza and we were kind of like it, it was the, it was genuinely open the idea was to just go and find all different kinds of pizza and see which one we kind of felt like it was going to be between Naples or Rome I just remember like sitting in Damichele, which is like the oldest pizza pizzeria in Naples, and trying that first margarita and having a genuine like, oh, this is different. This is a different product. So then it was that was that kind of set it in stone. It's like we we're going to go Naples pizza, and it's, it feels funny to say now because Neapolitan pizza has grown so much in the last ten years. But honestly, there was the Brixton Francamanca and I think a Chiswick Francamanca, and there was the guys out in Ealing, Santa Maria. They were there, but genuinely, apart from that, there really wasn't much Neapolitan pizza in London or the UK. I mean, uh, as far as I know, that I, I would definitely put my hand up and say <laughs> I'm sure there were. But um, it really felt like an underdeveloped area, and it was you know that's the authentic original pizza. So it kind of yeah, because it's, 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 it's a format that's like, been messed around with an awful lot, with you know stuffing things into the crust and thin and thick and and God knows what else. It, it's um, it's kind of it's you know it's re- I think people really appreciate sort of getting back to the bare bones of something. And rediscovering that's in, in this instance kind of simple and carefully made is 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 better. Yeah, the great thing about that was happening with street food was that it was making people focus on one product. So all you go to a market, there'd be fifteen stalls there, and the whole point of it was that there would be just that person under each tent that was yeah. just focusing on one dish. And that, that kind of like it kind of refocused everyone on obsessing over doing one thing as opposed to doing trying to have you know restaurants. Yeah, with that's, that's things the, the menu. key. There, so like, like the, we we had that in Brixton Village. Everyone had such a small space that it's just you focus on your speciality. You don't please everyone. If you wanna if you wanna go to pasta, you go over there. If you wanna go to burgers, you come to us. And that that's what I think is makes street food so great is that those like limitations are actually one of your the biggest strength of it. Yeah. It's a little bit more like how the New York restaurant scene works. Like it seems like there's just like it's always been the case that you go there for a burger, you go there. For, I always remember that scene from Elf where it's like world's best coffee. But to, but I mean Tom, the, the, so it's easy for for James to kind of go back to the origins of of pizza because uh, because they're still making it uh, where it was invented and they're still doing it traditionally and and so on. But I mean burgers a bit a bit different, isn't it? I mean I've, I've got I was saying we were talking to Alice about this yesterday and I have it in um, and I'm prepared for the for the riotous laughter now I have it in my head that burgers are derived from when cowboys kept meat under their saddle and they just used to squash the meat from sitting on it and their legs kind of slapping against it so, so assuming yeah, I, don't, I don't think it was cowboys I think it was actually soldiers of the Russian czar ah. it was even further back than cowboys the origins I read about was yeah they used to get ground meat and shove it under their saddles and the salt and sweat Salt would kind of semi-cure it, and the heat and the sweat would, would, would semi-cook it, and they'd eat it, and that was that. That sounds yeah. delightful. Jesus. I know. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> but, a, whole, um, a whole new dynamic to the horse meat scandal. 
<laughs> but, but but presumably though you, uh, you so you just uh, you, there's no way you can really go to to go well this is authentic I, so i'm just going to start from scratch and and work it out is that what you well, did we, when i started to look at burgers i was just making <clears throat> burgers for my mates at, uh, at uni and just you know my, like my mum used to make burgers for me and she would use a good cheddar on them and that's just we never use like plasticky American cheese. We'd always use cheddar cheese, and there would always just be lettuce in there, and sometimes mm. there'd be a relish. Um, and that was kind of what I was used to growing up. And, and they were always quite big and chunky and kind of homemade. And sometimes they had loads of ingredients that you just don't need. Um, but but I learned, sort of later learned that that's because the meat quality wasn't very good. You know, when you look at recipes, and even you know, you don't have to go back, back very far and see big celebrity chefs looking at burger recipes, and they've got like twenty ingredients just for the patty, and it's like the imperins, onion, mustard, gherkins, pickle, blah, blah, and you're just like, don't you need all that crap. When I realised that actually very quickly when I tried my ever first meat liquor from the meat wagon, as James mentioned earlier, as I was sort of experiencing um you know experimenting so with burgers in my um student house my um my connie my who's my wife now she said she'd seen something about the meat wagon and we we literally got a train up to london to, to try this and we went to a pub in I swear it was in shoreditch but maybe I'm, I'm committing maybe i'm mixing up my my uh geography but yeah pretty sure it was in shoreditch and tried tried a burger that yanni had cooked and it was just the greatest burger i've ever eaten and i was like that is just incredible but that was that didn't feel very authentic to me like i'd never been to america i didn't know what a smash burger was i'd, I'd never used french's mustard all those things so i was like that's fucking awesome i want to do it my way which was much more the kind of farmer's market you know in the sodden rain kind of style but using really good ingredients and, and that's when i you know the first time i tried a burger with 20 percent fat that was made from chuck steak um, and wasn't pre-seasoned and was made quite chunky and was cooked medium rare. And then I was like, oh my God, that is so much better than other burgers I've tried. And that's what we decided. And then the name kind of came about and we and it all kind of started to piece together yeah. um, that that's what you'd expect from an honest burger, in our opinion, is, you know, big, chunky kind of, homemade style burger yeah but i mean but i mean that is going as you've already said it's kind of going against what most of us think which is just you know just some mince with a bit of egg pressed together and and, and god knows what yeah. else it's, it's it's really it's don't interesting forget the breadcrumbs as well don't forget the breadcrumbs yeah. <laughs> yeah what i love about both of you uh, about both of your companies is the the uh, localism that you you kind of practice and, and the fact that so with so tom honest burger you do uh, each restaurant has its own special that isn't doesn't appear anywhere else like you've got the the brick lane salt salt beef bagel you've got the 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 brixton uh, is it the mama jerk burger is that the one yeah, yeah, yeah. um and then you and then uh, james you you do sort of monthly uh, monthly specials as as well and i know and this is going to bring us on to selfridges for, for you james i think i know for a fact james you, you so you sort of try you're you are trying or you already do source um, ingredients a lot closer to home than you would expect for um for a pizza restaurant yeah that's right i mean so for our main business the three core ingredients being flour, mozzarella and tomatoes all come from Naples. Um, and that's always been the case since the pilgrimage. That's where we met those suppliers. And so that's always just been the story. And there's, there's an authenticity to that that we love. But then when we, when we, when the selfish selfishes project came about, cause they have a big part of their big part of their ethos going forward is about sustainability. We wanted to see if we could as an experiment do a restaurant as a sort of test bed and a sort of ongoing place to experiment with a more sustainable restaurant. So that was everything from fit out to the way that it's powered to the, the produce and, you know, how that's grown and where it comes from. It's been a really yeah. fascinating project to be part of. And it's, it, it's been, it's been harder at times, but what's been really interesting is how sometimes there, there've definitely been a lot of times when we've been building this restaurant where it's actually worked in all three counts. It's been, better for business, better for the environment and better for the better for the flavor. Um, and I think a great example of that is is our basil. So I'm currently looking at, we've got a three meter long um, hydroponic basil tunnel as you enter this restaurant. Um, and uh, so we, we basically, we teamed up with these guys called uh, Harvest London who are based <coughs> out in East London uh, and they grow basil hydroponically. And so we, where we used to get all of our basil from, if I'm honest, in the, in the good times, Geneva, in the bad times, Israel. 
uh, sorry, yeah. it, depending on the season. And it was just a genuine example of like, it's it's such a better system. Like we got to, the guys are amazing down there. We got to develop our own strain. So this is the pizza pilgrim strain of basil that has the best no yield, the best flavor. We got to pick the leaf size. So we got to like cross pollinate stuff. I mean, it was just the maddest. Well, how I mean, long did that take? How long did that um, take now to, they to develop deliver- your own basil? It was, I mean, it was, it was about nine months in the, in the, in the making. And then just the product is like, what it basically basil coming from Israel, you probably get in the basil on about day 10. Whereas we literally, the basil goes on the pizza. It's much more vibrant. The flavor is, and we got to pick, yeah, sometimes depending on what time of the season, basil from Israel and even sometimes from Genoa, as it gets older, it kind of shifts from that lovely pesto Italian flavor through more aniseed into like more like Thai basil. So we can have complete control over that, which is amazing as well. And it just, you know, we don't have to refrigerate it. It sits in, it comes in these big crates and it just sits in our restaurants. And because it's completely fresh, it lasts, you know, 10 days without even, without even like going any kind of different flavor. It's it's been an amazing process. So it's just like, we're trying to look at those wins that work on all three counts. Because if it doesn't really work on all three counts, it's hard to justify long-term. Um, and then another one, this this um, wheat company that we're working with, they're, they're called Wild Farmed. And it's the maddest story. It's Andy Cato, who was one half of Groove Armada. He basically uh, was in Groove Armada, then decided to, they sort of, they took a hiatus from the band and he moved down to Toulouse and started a wheat farm um, and developed a completely new style of wheat farming, which is um, basically, he, he's he's one of those super great guys who just read up, did a PhD and figured out that what they're saying is there's 50, 50 harvests left is the, is the, is the phrase that he uses, which is like the way that we harvest intensively arable at the moment in 50 years time, we're going to, we're going to sort of like desecrated the soils. So he's developed this new system using ancient grains, which involves, they don't plow the field. So they grow the wheat taller than the kind of natural biodiversity that's in the field. And then they only harvest from about 400 millimeters high to a meter high, which means that life can kind of go on around the wheat. And so it's, it's where, where a normal bag of flour uses 840 grams of carbon, a, a kilo of flour from them is carbon positive. Wait, which way around is it? It puts, it takes 2,400 grams of carbon out of the atmosphere. So it's like... And that- it's a positive. And that's because they allow the chaff to the, 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 the stalk to, to rot back into the ground. Exactly. And they don't they don't tilling, they don't till yeah. the soil. So they don't till the soil. So all of the like <clears> all of the rich basically what what you create in the worst environment, in the worst version of arable farming is sort of deserts that grow one crop that's sort of t- all taken away once a year. So you've got no like natural life and no no sort yeah, of biodiversity it, happening. Plowed, any any um, any goodness that may have been generated by the root structure of whatever you were growing as soon as you plow that up you're you're destroying all the fauna and all the microbes that that are in that topsoil and you're just starting again which you're not leaving nature time to heal it's fascinating i I went to see um, Andy and his farm and have a look at it because what is really exciting is the requirement for um for grass eating animals and ruminants in in a system like that as well if you really want to get into into improving soil health there's no greater instrument than a cow which, which just shows how intrinsically yeah. linked we are james forever um <laughs> oh so, yeah seamlessly i could i could talk about uh, honest farming <laughs> well well this is what i'm building up to i mean like i'm, I'm just so um very kindly uh we we uh, got sent through a uh, some information about honest farming so so we've got i've got a little piece here that i've i've kind of i've i've, I've ringed it and kind of put duh underneath it which is because it, it just makes uh, perfect sense i mean finally cow pats are natural fertilizers with all the nutrients the soil needs to stay healthy worms and beetles then feed off the dung tunneling up from the soil to get the nutrients they need these tunnels create natural holes for rainwater to drain into instead of quickly running off the fields into streams which can cause floods so i mean so you tom have uh, you you've developed this um, this idea of kind of honest uh, honest farming do you want to explain what that is about yeah no sure i mean it's similar to, to james i think you know you own a you own a, a business that takes a lot from the planet um eventually when the dust kind of settles and that's for me that was about three or four years ago you start to realize actually what your business does and and how damaging that can be for so many so many areas of the world um and you start to think is there a better way and i certainly did and i was like 
we can't be called honest honest burgers and not try harder at these things and not think differently and and i think that's half the problem is there's such a there's such a, a kind of set in stone way of doing things that no one tries to challenge that sort of status quo so businesses like wild farmed and hopefully what we're about to do with with honest farming and, and the farmers we're using i hope that's going to raise people's eyebrows and attention and they're going to look at this and go actually maybe there is another way and right now it might be it might be a little bit elitist and it might be more expensive than some people can afford but you've got to start somewhere and you know we will get the, like all these things they get better right everything the first car did about three miles to the gallon now where we're at like we will become more efficient at it but for now we just need to look at what's in front of us our farming system is buggered like on pretty much every way of producing foods we are we are not putting back what we're taking out and i you know it's scary when you look at some of the detail around this so for us for what honest farming is and back to your first question for us honest farming is working with direct with farmers um we're going to be buying the whole animal off these farmers which gives them peace of mind um because you can't you can't ask a farmer to farm differently when you're only buying you know five percent of the carcass off him yeah um we're going to be giving them feedback on their farm also on their, their product on their beef which is another thing farmers are so detached from their food um so we're going to be working so closely with them giving them direct feedback collecting like tons of data on on what we need that um cow to yield at which is great for them and we're going to pay them a fair price so they don't need to rely on these big abattoirs that will just give them consistent sales we're going to give the farmer a decent price their beef which will you know hopefully help them in the long run because sustainability is not sustainable if it's not profitable yeah absolutely i'm but i i i mean to go back to 2001 um it, when we had the the foot and mouth here i mean my dad uh i have to stop saying he was a farmer he worked on a farm he wasn't he didn't own the farm but he worked on a farm so so he remembered the 60 whatever it was the 1960 foot and mouth outbreak and that was that was much more localized because they there were still local abattoirs and uh, it didn't spread all over the country. And one of the reasons why the two thousand and one one was so dev- devastating is because the, 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 all the small abattoirs had had gone out of business. It was all these big yeah. ones. So so cows were. Uh, well, livestock rather were crisscrossing across the country and and, and spreading it everywhere. Um, it, it just it just seems that there's so many things which kind of are so far removed from common sense and it, oh, yeah. and it is it is all in in the name of profit um i remember sort of doing the the sommelier course the olive oil sommelier course and they, they brought in a guy from uh from from spain who was a biodynamic um olive farmer and, and, I, and i'll be brutally honest i, I did an internal kind of roll of the eyes because he was biodynamic <laughs> by the end of it uh, it, it was extraordinary. So he was, t- I mean, just really simple things that stuck out to me were the fact that olive farmers spend so much time uh, either clearing or not, not plowing, but clearing the space between their trees of anything that grows because, because it, it's taken away the nutrients. And he was just like, this is rubbish. This is absolute mm. rubbish. You just let things grow. And, and what they do is they, they, fix, they, they fix nitrogens and, and phosphates or whatever into the ground. But not only that, you then get insects coming in. And some of these insects predate on the olive fly, which, is, which causes huge problems for which we normally have to spray. And he said, it, I think it took him three years to do the conversion. And what they found at the end of the three years was their, their total crop was a third up. Um, it you know it's Amazing, so yeah. yeah which brings so it brings me back to that point is it is it is it deliberate disinformation do you think that I mean you I think you said no to this but it, it from what I've seen from what I've read it does seem that you can produce a decent amount of food by by, by using sort of traditional methods or sort of adapted traditional methods and I'm sorry and the last thing I'm I'm going to say is and, and Edward who's one of our olive oil growers. Um, He's sort of he's done a huge planting um, of, of olive trees. He's trying to become um, completely self-sufficient for olives, 
And he, uh, we had a conversation when he did the podcast, and he was talking about uh, he's he's looking at investing in electric vehicles and so on. And one of the things he sort of said, "Yeah, I'm looking at that." Is where they do need to remove weeds. It's robots that basically can identify what shouldn't be there, and then they just zap it with a laser. So there's you know there's <laughs> this no. Which what is world just, are we living in? What, ex- exactly. Yeah. But then, but then there's that. But then when you so when you start to dig down, you get this wonderful marriage of of modern technologies with with old ways of doing it it's kind of like the the modern technology comes in and makes up for whatever that shortfall previously was what um what i'm finding interesting about the the technology thing is like with these new suppliers that we're working with they're hey they're so dynamic the guys i mean so wild farm is run by andy who's a rock star George, who's an ex-TV presenter, and Ed, who's a city boy. And these guys are like, I mean, I'm being massively reductive, but that's what they call themselves. And they're just like, they're so passionate. They're so energetic. They're, they're so well-funded because sustainability is like the new tech. It's like these guys are coming in and they've got big budgets to spend and they're, they're, they're managing to make big differences. Same with the, with the Basel guys. So it's, it's really exciting to be seeing like these new, this new generation of businesses coming through that are, as, as Tom said, profitable but also regenerative yeah, you, and you, making the difference. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite optimistic about how this, this, this new set of businesses that are starting up. Yeah, the, the opportunity that is available to us because, you know, we're, we're not going to start eating less food. We need to become more dependent on the right sorts of food. I think the, the biggest thing I'm concerned about is, is just the sheer vast, the, the, the number of, of, um, of meats, sorry, the number of meat, the amount of meat that we consume and we have absolutely no idea where it comes from. That's where I think we need to start becoming more and more stringent. And I say we, I mean as a, as a restaurant brand. Like restaurant brands need to start looking at themselves under a far harsher light than they ever have done before. Because you buy from your butcher, who buys from a wholesaler, who might buy from an abattoir, who then buys from a farmer. Like You've got no real way of understanding where and how and what exactly that animal has gone through um and it's hard right it's taken it's taken me the best part of three years to get this honest farming um initiative off the ground to actually work with a farmer like I've, we've got right well when this podcast goes out we should have nine honest burgers restaurants um should be um using honest farmed beef and we'll be supplying them with three farmers who i've met and i know them and i've shaken their hands and i've seen how they rear our animals and they use, you know, the, what they're doing isn't, it's not like they haven't just ripped up the rule book and started again. The, the crazy thing about what regenerative farming is, and I think Andy Cato's done a, he's, he's introduced very pioneering technology, but with cattle farming and regenerative farming, you're basically just mimicking how that animal has evolved hmm. to, be, to be part of their own little system. Like one thing that's incredible is you leave nature to it, and she will come up with a solution. Just you just got to be patient. There's an amazing book by Isabella Tree called um, Wilding about the Nepa State in Kent, and they they rewilded you know like two and a half thousand acres that used to be intensively reared um, land, and they had all these things where they had to they had to literally just hold back and just say no, we can't we can't intervene. We need to just let nature um, you know come up with a solution. And sure enough, every single time, nature would come along and and would find a solution. And for us. You know, we can't just rewild the planet. Like we need, we need to be able to consume, you know, vast amounts of food, and they need to be nutritionally um, full. Which is another problem: is most of our food we produce now is empty. It's got nowhere near the kind of um, nutrients that it would have a hundred years ago. I think I heard the other day: if you ate a tomato in the 1920s, you'd have to eat eight tomatoes today to get the same amount of vitamins and minerals. Because of things like pesticides and fertilizers, that you're only putting back a certain thing in the ground to help that plant grow and give you the yield, which is why, you know, James, you're better than I, but why are tomatoes in this country? 99% of them taste like crap. They've got no flavor. They just look like a tomato, and that's that. But they, so it's, it's a scary world, for sure, but it's a huge It is, but, the, but they have got... I mean, um, how, old, uh, how old are you guys? I'm going to make myself feel awful now. How, James, how old are you? 35, Tom. 35. 35. Yeah. Obviously, I, I, it's me and James another, basically the same person. Ex- exactly, you are, yeah. With your, yeah. With your same brother and, and When's your birthday? Are, you, are we two days apart? How <laughs> weird is that? Yeah, 986, 7th of April. 
Start and you, and you were born on the 9th? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a bit bizarre. It has got better. It has got better. I mean, I, yeah, because I remember, uh, I mean, there was a time when I just stopped buying tomatoes, and that would be like the late 80s, because they were just these hard, pale, mm. insipid yeah. things that they just, they had they nothing. They more like a cucumber. Well, they were more like a snooker ball in some cases. They, 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 and and uh, yeah, and yeah. crunchy. Yeah, like, and, like and, an apple. And, and then at, at some point in the nineties, <laughs> yeah. uh, they started uh, they started introducing on the vine, which is just you know what is this strangeness? It, it's just, it was really bizarre. So think things do kind of um, move on, but I mean I agree with you. I still think you know largely they're uh, they're, they're just not as good but but that is also i think partly to do with the fact that we've um, we've been brought up to believe you can have whatever you want whenever you want yeah and so That's you get tomatoes problem, yeah. yeah being grown in um being grown in in, in kent under under, under um, glass or or plastic or whatever it is um what um so how okay so we've 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 sort of said that we need to eat less meat how for both of you because you both have a, a a fantastic vegan offering how does that sit with with veganism do you think the fact that and i i agree it's it's it should be unapologetic that uh that um for being a meat eater but how does that sit? tom you've you've got a specific vegan restaurant which is in soho uh garrick street so yeah garrick, more, yep garrick um, street leicester square so yeah and uh, and and obviously, James, you you've got um, a a really good vegan offering, including um, here we go. Here's the Bella Zoo advert, Arviduya. Which... <laughs> Hang on, drum roll. Uh, Bella Zoo. Bella... <laughs> Maybe. Uh, yeah, the Viduya, which is our which is our um, vegan induya. So how does it? Which is amazing, by the way. To give you guys credit, it's a really great product. That the Vegazoo. What is it called? I, I, I <laughs> <laughs> we do, we do, we do yeah. I kind of like that was that was my proudest that was my proudest moment because that was my I came up with that name. Yeah, I'm taking full I credit like for Vida Zoo. I think massive so, yeah. you that. I think t Tom's Vida Zoo was really good. <laughs> we never none of us ever thought of that. Um, yeah, I mean it, it's uh, that actually Henry Henry Russell who has our development chef that would that's completely his uh, his invention. Oh man, it's um, so good. It's it is it's it's really really good. But is do you do you think there is a conflict of any kind between providing vegan food or you know is it are we do you think that um, do you think we can all live cheek by jowl with and and neither should offend the other as it were. I think it's um it's a really emotive subject that I want to tread very carefully on because I'm very aware I'm I'm owner of a business that largely sells meat so I'm. I, I think that meat plays an incredibly important role in um, climate and in nature. And I think that the right kind of meat, and I would say hand on heart, I'd probably, if I, I, if I was going to try and throw a statistic, which I can't back up with any fact, I'd probably say 99% of all meat produced on the planet is produced in a, in a harmful way to the planet. Now, I, to counteract that, for us to say, you know, veganism is the answer, if the world went vegan tomorrow, the whole world would collapse very, very quickly because we don't have, you know, vegan diets today that are very, very supplemented by vegan, um, you know, old, old meats and, and proce hyper-processed foods, which mm. again are reliant, incredibly, incredibly reliant on pesticides and fertilizers. And there isn't a solution, an easy one, yet but what is important i want to stress is old based meats and and um, vegan meats and meat alternatives all those things they make veganism more accessible which i think is a good thing if you if you can you know if if mcdonald's could not produce could, could not depend on you know the, the thousands of tons of of beef and they could uh, some of some of those customers to a product which tastes very very similar mm. um that's made from from you know pea or whatever, then I think that could be seen as a good thing because we do need to produce less less meat um, we, because we can't just turn our meat supply into you know 100% regenerative. But I think if we can we can produce a, a sexier part of it and, and make people a little bit more discerning about the meat they do eat, and then when they want to eat something and be less discerning about it, 
yeah, I think it would be beneficial if that could be made from from plants. But like I said, you know, regenerative farm meat plays a very, very crucial role in in restoring biodiversity and restoring restoring soil health, and also putting um, animal welfare really at the heart of it. Because nature is not um, not a kind place for animals, and unless we want to reintroduce predators to our countryside, which I know sounds a bit extreme, but if you want to keep populations down, you have to hunt or you have to, to farm and, and mm. cull animals. And that is the, the short sort of fact of it. I mean, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to wind up, I think, with, with sort of uh, one last question each, which is, um, so first of all, to Tom, what monthly special pizza would you like James to create, especially just for you? And James, what ultimate uh, special burger would you have Tom create for you? Interesting. Beautiful. Thank you. Beautiful. We've, got to, we've got to combine our nows here, surely. So the, the trouble with Italian and beef is that really it's a very pork-led situation. So I'd want to see some kind of pork, Oof. maybe a porchetta burger. Oof. Yeah. That could be good. That would be good. Like, we don't, we don't really have much beef in our kitchens. We are a very pig-led well, we're actually, we don't, uh, yeah, the, the Italians tend to eat a lot of yeah. vegetarian food, really. Actually, naturally, pizza is, our oh, menu 60% veggie off the start, which is kind of good. But when it is, it's mostly, like, cured yeah. pork. So we're going but, for yeah. what, por- uh, some, some kind of porchetta burger? Okay. I think a porchetta burger with a, with a, with a pizza <laughs> in a pizza bun is what I want. And okay. just, just in time. And I'd like it, and I'd like it to be, I'd like it to be very flat and very, very round and very wide, like a pizza. I want to take you back to my childhood cartoon favourite of Biker Mice from Mars. You guys remember that? You remember, oh, you remember yeah. the bad guy in that? Oh, yeah. He used to just fold up a pizza into one slice. <laughs> you remember it? I... You know, that's actually, yeah, yeah, know. That's actually very amazing. traditional. Yeah, that's called, in Naples, that's called... Pizza, yeah, yeah. pizza portafoglio. Yeah, like Mice from Mars pizza. is very factually correct in many ways. Um, <laughs> So what I, I want you to create the kind of like origami of pizza burger love child where you get your pizza and it's got mm-hmm. ingredients of a burger in it. So it will have a whole burger patty and then it will have some bacon, then it will have some relish and have some pickles. And then you have to fold it in a way that it recreates an honest burger, but with a full pizza as the, yeah. as the like carrier to then put in your mouth. I, I'm, I am appalled at how not seriously you've Perfect. taken that question. Uh, you basically, James, you've asked him, you've asked Tom to make a pizza, and Tom, you've asked James to make uh, a burger. Yeah, a burger. <laughs> and on and on that <laughs> note, yeah. uh, <laughs> on that note, gentlemen, uh, James Elliott from Pizza Pilgrims, Tom Barton, Honest Burger. Thank you so much. I've really that time has flown. Thank you so much, and um, yeah, good good luck with it all. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thank Thanks, you very Paul. much. Cheers, 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 everyone. Bye bye. Cheers, guys. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to leave a rating and review. We'd really appreciate you taking the time to let us know what you think. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and LinkedIn, or go to bellazoo.com. Thank you very much for listening, and hope you can join us next time. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.